Hey friends, it's your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this show, we talk about all things D&D. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help support shows like this, you can do so by following the link in the show notes below and becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material, exclusive adventures, guidelines and tools to help you run your games. But most of all, you help me support shows like this. So thank you very much for your support to the patrons of Sly Flourish. We have a lot of things to talk about today, a lot of things. And I'm, I'm unfortunately, I'm going to be starting off with a bit of a downer. So for those of you who have been watching my Lazy D&D prep shows where we talk about games, I've talked about one of my players, Brian, and I mentioned a couple weeks ago that Brian had kind of fallen off the grid. Unfortunately, I found out that my friend Brian had died, that shortly, within hours of the last game, that we had been playing Blades in the Dark game. He had visited a friend and come back, come back, came back from visiting a friend and he was out of communication with his family and they went over and found out that he had, he had died. He had died of a heart attack. And I, I didn't wanna bring this up to be a big downer, but I wanted to bring it up to kind of, because it really, you know, my friends and I have been talking about, we're gonna talk about it today, right? My friends that have played with Brian for years and I've played with Brian for about seven years, right? I, he, was, he was a pickup guy. He was a guy that I, when I played at a local game shop here in my, in my town, at a shop that no longer exists actually, I was running in-person games without any, I was just letting people show up. I would mention it that, hey, we got this game. They'd advertise it in their letter for the shop and then people would show up and we'd play D&D. And he showed up right away, right? He actually hadn't heard about that, but he walked by and said, oh my God, you guys are playing D&D. And he joined us and we played, he, that was during Horde of the Dragon Queen. And so he played, he was the player that I had been playing with the longest in my, in my current group. And the only one that I had played with who was still, that I had met at that, at that game shop. And we played Horde of the Dragon Queen, Princes of the Apocalypse, Out of the Abyss, Curse of Strahd, Storm King's Thunder, Waterdeep Dragon Heist, Tomb of Annihilation, Eberron, Ghost of Saltmarsh, every campaign that I've played since, which is like D&D campaigns. He was in all of those and he was a lot of fun to be with and I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to miss him a lot. My, my players and I are going to miss, miss, you know, miss playing with him a lot. And it just, it reinforces for me how much this game matters, right? I, there's a reason, I have an article on Sly Flourish, which somewhat unfortunate title given the topic, that D, playing D&D can save your life. And I think this was, you know, we, we all talked about it. Brian, Brian was on the spectrum and he, I know he had mentioned the fact that he did not, it didn't work out with him in other gaming groups with other, with other people because he had a couple of idiosyncrasies that once you understood them, you could deal with and they worked great. And I, I had sort of a, a Brian cheat sheet for new people coming into the group, right? Say we have a member of our, of our group who's autistic. Here are like a couple of his triggers, right? These are a couple of things that will happen during the game and here's how to respond to them. And if you do those, everything works great. And I had one of my players who was my, one of my more recent players who said, you know, that worked perfectly, right? We had, we had, you know, you told me what he was going to do and he did it. And you told me how I should respond when it happens. And we did, and it worked great, right? And in his case, because uh, he was on the spectrum, he couldn't receive, he didn't always know if he was making people mad, right? And he, unlike us, where we can kind of sense body language and stuff like that, like that, he didn't. And so his response was, he would sometimes say, are you mad at me for no reason at all? And you might, you might not even have said anything to him at all. And he'd say, are you mad at me? And the, and the answer is no, I'm not mad. You're, you're doing great. Right. And once, as long as you recognize it, he would just do that. Cause it would really throw people off if 
he, if you didn't know that he was going to say it, you'd be like, why, why would you think I'm mad? Right. You get defensive and it was, it would it'd be a weird situation. Once you knew that he did that, it was fine. But with other groups, it, it could create weird tension and it, and it, and it caused problems. I know that it mattered a lot for us to be able to have him. He was the most consistent player that I had. And I know the game mattered a lot to him. I know that he liked it a lot. I would talk to him a lot about it. I'd have lunch with him and we'd talk about it. And, you know, it, it, it matters, right? This game matters. And, and there's something that I really think about when I'm doing what I'm doing here and the kinds of things that I think are important and why I put as much energy. A lot of the reason I put as much energy towards this whole hobby as I do is because I know how much it can matter to people. I know that it's hard for people to have meaningful relationships. I have another article that I wrote recently about how, how to make and keep friendships, right? And how to draw those friendships and make them stronger. Because in our world of social media, there's lots of data and lots of research on this if you wanna look into it. Social media is not a great way for friendships to stay connected. It's not a great way to meet people. It's not a great way to build strong friendships. I think D&D is, right? And, and I think that given the proximity and given the amount of time that we spend and given that we are being creative together, I think it's really important, right? I think it really matters. I know it matters to me, right? I know that my games matter to me. And when COVID happened, when COVID first started out, and, and I, for me, it wasn't even a question of whether or not I was going to switch to play online. I did, immediately, we switched to online play. Like, I don't think we missed a week, right? And I remember after a few weeks, after a few months, kind of in the, in, you know, or late, late 2020, early 2021, I had some friends of mine who, you know, they have families and they have friends of their own and everything like that. And they said, like, I can't tell you how much this game matters, right? Like getting together with you guys and separating from everything else, separating from work, separating from our families and just and, and just getting together with you guys to play D&D, how much that matters. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. It matters to me too, right? It matters to all of us. And for, for us to be able to get these groups together and, and, and play, like, it's more important than I think we think it is, right? I think we, we talk about mechanics. We talk about you know, monsters not hitting for enough damage. And we talk about all this like nonsense throughout, but, but boy, when you take a step back and think about what we're doing here and you think about how powerful it is to have five, six friends get together and play imagination, you know, play in our imaginations together and share stories and laugh and just relax and be ourselves, right? Be our true selves, right? That how important that is. And it, it really hits home when something like this happens, right? It really hits home when you think about like the hundreds and hundreds of games that he and I played together, right? And that he played with my, my friends. And we, I was already, one of my other players was in my other game and we were talking about, it. we were already starting. It was just he and I and like five or four other people were like, I don't know who you're talking about, right? And we're like, man, the stories that we have that we shared really matter, right? And I've shared them on this show. I've shared in old prep episodes about some of the some of the things that have happened in our games. And and Brian was always a good sport about it, right? Like Brian, a lot of bad things happen to Brian's characters. And I always was careful to make sure that like he was okay with the kinds of things that happened. And he was like, he would, you know, he had a lot of character deaths and they were remarkable. And we shared stories about those, right? We, we shared stories when he was alive, when he was around. So I'm very, I'm sad. The, the, you know, the nice thing is I did uh, manage to talk to his family. I talked to his mother, had a really nice conversation with her. I'd never really talked to her before. And, and she reinforced how much the game mattered to him and how he had firewalled off that time every Sunday so he could sit and play with us and how much she appreciated that and, and, and how great it was. And, we, and I shared with her how much we, we enjoyed playing with him. So 
yeah, it's a, it was it's obviously a very sad a sad day, but it's also a, a good day to reflect on how important it is to 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 focus on these. So I didn't want to start off with a real bummer, but I did bring it up in my prep show last week, and I wanted to talk about that today because I really do think the kind of stuff we're doing here, the the work that we are doing as DMs, bringing people together to play D and D regularly, really matters to people. It matters more than I think people think. And I think the more the easier we make it for people to get to the table, the easier we make the game to run, the more games that we can run, all of that stuff is leading toward healthier lives, right? I really, I really believe that. So that's, that's just something I wanted to talk about. So speaking of Blades in the Dark, I am going to do, I'm going to have a two-hour show, probably two-ish hour show, Tuesday night. So Tuesday night at about 7 p.m. Eastern. I'll put it on the Discord schedule if you're on my Discord server. 7 p.m., uh, Eastern Standard Time on Tuesday, I'm going to do a two-subject show. And one of them will be a probably a 30-minute look at how our final Blades in the Dark game ran. I'm not going to talk about it today during our prep show because our prep show, we're going to focus on Numenera. And it works better because that way I have a video that's just about Blades in the Dark and I have another video that's just about Numenera and I'm not combining the two into one video, which would be strange. So that is going to happen at 7 p.m. The other half of that video is going to be, I should move this, this guy up here, is going to be a big-ass Patreon Q&A stream. I have a lot of questions left on Patreon, on, on, on the Patreon, Sly Flourish Patreon Q&A, which we do every month. And I've got like 30 or 40 questions left. So we're going to spend the rest of that two-hour block doing going through all those, the remainder of those questions for January. And then I'll put up a February Q&A for new questions for this, for this talk show. So that is going to happen. Uh, that is going to happen there. There's been a lot of good discussion on my on the Sly Flourish Discord server about my rant about Monsters of the Multiverse and D and D Beyond last week. And I think we mostly still, you know, I, I still believe a lot of the stuff that I said. I'm, the, the things I said, I stand by. But I did fall into the very thing that I always preach against, which is like making predictions about how things are going to happen. And, and I know I'm going to be, I could very well be wrong. And, and in one case, a lot of people brought up the fact that D&D Beyond probably can handle having both sources of data, both sources. So my, my, my argument was that it's going to be really confusing on D&D Beyond to have two different Kenkus and two different Tabaxis and two different, you know, character races for the 30 character races that are in Monsters of the Multiverse. And the idea that you have the character races that were part of Volos and Mordenkainen's, and then you have the character races that are part of Monsters of the Multiverse. They are called the same thing, but they are actually different. Uh, a lot of people brought up that probably, if, if D&D Beyond already doesn't have a good way to handle that, they probably will. And that could be true, right? The uh, same thing with Monsters, that I was like, so now I'm going to have two Deathlocks. And if I do a search for Deathlock, I'm going to see two of them pop up. And I have to go figure out which one came from Monsters of the Multiverse and which one came from Morden Canaan's, right? Or Volos, whichever one that book is in. And that's going to be confusing. But they might, the answer is they could probably, they'll probably find a way to deal with that, right? And a lot of people brought up that this is the better solution than replacement. That particularly after seeing how things went, there was an Eberron, there was an Eberron book, The Wayfarer's Guide to Eberron, I think, it was a PDF of Eberron stuff, and it had a Warforged in there, and it wasn't really treated as playtest material, like you paid for it, but they then changed the Warforged from that version to a new version, and people liked the old version and felt like they got ripped off on D&D Beyond because they bought the old, they bought Wayfarer's Guide, and then they bought rising from the last war and this thing that they had paid for disappeared essentially right the old version of the warforge essentially disappeared there was other arguments about playtest stuff but i think we have less 
you know, I think we have worry uh, about playtest stuff getting replaced because it is playtest stuff, right? I mean, I do. I, other people get mad when I, you know, people can get mad for all kinds of reasons, right? Some people get mad about Deathlock masterminds. So who can who can say why people get mad? But anyway, my point is like they they were probably they may they may find a way to deal with this. So for me, kind of shouting woe was me that you know D&D Beyond is going to be this you know, swirling, chaotic mass, and we're not going to be able to know how to pull things up. Probably was overreacting. And the solution that they chose of, you can buy the new book or you can keep your old books and you will have, all of the stuff will be there and you will not replace things that you already bought is the better option for people. And that's fine. I don't think it's the better option for me, but it's the better option for a lot of people. So, and you know, I wouldn't say mea culpa. I don't think I'm wrong, but I think like, I, you know, I may be wrong. I may be wrong about it being too chaotic, Right. But I think like for a lot of people, that is actually the optimal, that is the, the, the optimal solution. So this show, one of the sponsors of today's show, it's the first time I've ever done like a real sponsorship and it's, you know, it's a kind of a paid endorsement, right? For Toma Beast 3. I talk about Kickstarters and the truth is I would absolutely spotlight. And I think I've talked about it even before we got this deal, but two things happen. One is I am going to have a monster in it. So it's now a little self-serving, but also a Cobalt Press helped endorse, helped, help, help sponsor my work so you know i'm getting paid from them to, for this however i would totally spotlight this thing anyway because as we all know i'm a big fan of cobalt press i love cobalt press material and there is no way you could keep me from backing the tome of east 3 kickstarter and it has launched i don't think it had launched uh the last time we talked so i'm going to paste the uh link and you can get to the kickstarter in the show notes below I know a sponsor, crazy. And don't get excited. I don't expect to do many sponsorships. It's kind of a unique thing for them because I've worked with them a lot. So the Tome of Beast 3 is a huge book of new monsters for your fifth edition game. And we're going to be talking a lot about monsters. We talked about monsters in the multiverse last week. We talked about like the previews of the monsters from monsters in the multiverse. If you want to see like where we dug into some of the monsters themselves, look back at yesterday, that last week's show. And later we're going to be talking about the level up 5e monstrous grimoire. So there are so many books of monsters. And then we have rumors are that, that MCDM, Matt Colville's company is going to be putting out a, and, and, and crowdfunding, kickstarting a book of monsters um, themselves. And like Level Up 5e, it is intended to be a monster manual replacement. The Tome of Beasts is not a monster manual replacement. It is an adjunct to the existing sets of, of monsters. They're doing very well, obviously. 5,900 backers with 24 days to go. That is a tremendous number of backers. Monster books are always very popular. Monster books are interesting because you would think that like you have enough but you can always make more monsters, right? And and there's there's good value. Like, sure, you can reskin, right? We have all the tricks of the lazy dungeon master here. Like, take the monster manual, find a monster that's close enough to what you want and reskin it. But then it's something else when you find really interesting designs from designers who are paid to actually make good monsters for it, right? And 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 boy, Cobalt Press has been doing this. This will be their fourth book of monsters. They they have a couple thousand monsters, we're close to fifteen hundred monsters that they're gonna have, and. All of them are great. I have, I have all three. I have Tome of Beast 1 and 2 and Creature Codex sitting right up there on my shelf. And exciting stuff. The, and, the, and the rewards are good. The value is good. It's 30 bucks for the PDF. Uh, it is 45. I always found that the print copies are, are usually a pretty good deal. Let's see. They have all sort of VTT versions that you can get. The hardcover and PDF is 60 bucks. Pretty reasonable. Does that come with layers? I don't believe that comes with layers. Yes. 
So 90 bucks gets you Tome of Beast 3 hardcover. The Lairs, oh wow, the Lairs is going to be hardcover. Normally the Lairs is a softcover book. I didn't know that. So two hardcover books and PDFs of both of those books for 90 bucks, which is what I, that's, that's what I, that's what I backed. You know, I'm, I love their physical, their physical quality. Their books are excellent. They, and, and it's excellent and getting better. Like the, the quality of the book has gotten better. I think they switched paper types to a glossier, somewhat thinner, but still very good glossier paper quality that, that has a better depth of the, the artwork. So I'm hoping that they will use that for this too. And it's yeah, excellent stuff. So real, you know, real great stuff. They're Kickstarter. And then you can see all kinds of previews and they have all kinds of different guests, including yours truly that are going to have a monster in there. I'm kind of excited. I hope they preview my monster. I just sent it in on Friday. So my, my, I, I might, I might make, they might be able to talk about my, my little, my little addition here. And lots of stretch goals, lots of, you know, lots of growth and new things. Oh, and this is the first time that they're doing miniatures, right? So they, you know, they're adding a whole bunch of different miniature stuff in there. So you can take a look at that. I'm not, I'm not big into adding, I like, I'm so good on miniatures. It's pro, again, it's not for me, but there are lots of people who love to get miniatures and dice sets and things like that. So it's really cool. Check it out. Uh, use the link in the show notes below uh, if you are excited about backing it. But boy, you, you know, you can't go wrong. Cobalt Press, I think they are. I did a poll. And I think it's pretty clear that they are the number one producer of third-party material for 5e. Like everybody just loves Cobalt Press and, and not with, and, and all for good reason. They make really, really excellent stuff. So that is Toma B. So now, wow, we're getting, we're doing, we're doing good. Let's talk about today's spotlight. And we are focusing once again on monsters. And the book that we're going to look at came out uh, a little while ago. This is the, the, the Level Up 5e, Level Up Advanced 5e, Monstrous Menagerie. If you are familiar, so Level Up 5e is a, a series of books produced by N-World, uh, N-World Publishing. N-World has run a message forum and community for D&D for decades, right? They've, they've had very, very popular message, message boards talking about D&D. That's been going on forever. Lots of interesting. Gary Gygax used to write posts on this, on this, on this forum. And they have been getting bigger and bigger and doing more and more. And they took the ambitious, the amb ambitious step of making a 5e replacement. So fully 5e compatible. You can take any of the books that they've created. They created three, three books, the Monstrous Menagerie, their version of a player's guide and their version of a, like an adventurer's guide, right? That's sort of their version of a DMG. And all of the material from all of these books is compatible with, you know, vanilla 5e. So you can use character classes from their, from the Level Up 5e book with side-by-side -side with character classes from your fifth edition D&D products, right? And they're all fully compatible. Likewise with a lot of the things that are in the DMG. I haven't, I haven't really dug into their adventure. I should go look it up and see what the hell the thing's called. Yeah, the Level Up 5e Adventurer's Guide is their sort of, D their sort of Dungeon Master's Guide, right? Or is, is that Trials and Treasure? Am I getting these things messed up? Is the, the adventure, I'm getting a mix up. The adventurer's guide is their version of a player's handbook. It has class information and all the stuff that they need to make to make new classes. Trials and Treasure is their version of their dungeon master's guide. And I may dig into that, if, depending on how people feel about it. And, and if I read it and depending on how I feel about it, I may, I may do a deep dive into that too. That isn't something that I looked at yet. So I did, however, what, what I wanted to talk about today was the Monstrous Menagerie. And that is because... 
it is very easy to drop this stuff right into your 5e game. Unlike, do I want to bring in new classes into my game? Which you could do, right? But you want to like take a look at and make sure they fit your your style of game and your players. And you know that like once you bring a class in, that class is staying there for your whole campaign. So you know, there's a bigger commitment to bringing stuff like that in. But a monster, like I could just run one monster and see how it runs and it dies and then it goes away. And then I, if I go like, ah, oh, that worked, great. If it didn't, eh, it's okay, right? Monsters are easy to drop in. I think it's one of the reasons why monster books are so popular is like, we know we can bring monsters easily into our games, right? We know that that's an easy thing to do. I did it with Monty Cook's Archon of the Ancients, right? They have the, and Beasts of Flesh and Steel, Numenera style monsters for 5e. Very easy for me to drop those into my Eberron game. So mon that's one of the nice things about monster books is how easy they are to drop to drop into your game. To me, the number one interesting question that I had when I looked at the Monstrous Menagerie was, is this better than the D&D monster manual? Right? That's a bold question, right? And a bold statement. And I asked that to my Discord server. So I have people that on Discord that have been reading this and using it. And, and I asked them and, and a lot, they all, you know, they were all silent. Like, everyone, hmm, do I say this? And they're like, kinda, right? And I think on my look through without having run, I don't think I've run any of the monsters yet, right? But looking at them and looking at some of the features that they have and some of the direction that they went with the book, there's really only one thing I see where I say, yeah, that the monster manual is definitely better than this at that one thing. And I'll get into that. But like, there's a lot of really cool going on in this book. So one thing to note is that Paul Hughes was the lead developer of this book. And Paul Hughes runs a blog called Blog of Holding, where he did a ton of mathematical analysis of existing monsters and compared them to the guidelines in the DMG and did a lot of work. He has a really popular article called A Monster Manual on an Index Card. And I've spent a lot of time looking at Paul's work and deconstructing his monster math because I get in kind of the math of monsters myself. And I think it was really interesting stuff. So, so did Enworld and they brought him on and said, how would you like to make a monster book? And he did, right? And I imagine, I can't imagine how big an effort it was. It is a 535 page monster manual and you can pick up the PDF of this 535 page manual for $20. That is a crazy deal. So is it a good deal? Absolutely. Do I recommend it? Absolutely. I don't see like even if it just gives you a few ideas, right? Even if you don't use it often. Wow, 500 page book for $20 with well-designed monsters. And are the monsters well-designed? Yes, they are. So there's a bunch of interesting things that they did here. And, and I'm gonna try to cover a few of these. So they, they have like a typical things about monsters. There's a few, I kind of like skip by the intro a lot of the stuff. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Show me a monster stat block, right? But in this case, there's actually important things in here that you want to keep note of, like elite monsters. And, and elite monsters is one of the things I think is really, really great in this book. This is something I really missed. And I wish fifth edition, I wish Wizards of the Coast would add to their stuff. I would love to see more of this in other third-party products, which is hard mode monsters, right? An elite monster usually are like an, a unique version of a monster that are harder than your other ones. This is sort of a way of creating a mythic, a mythic monster. If you recall that in Mythic Odysseys of Theros, Wizards of the Coast started creating mythic monsters, which are like two-part monsters where once they drop to their hit points, they are restored. Uh, I did this, we did this in Fantastic Lairs as well with some of their bigger monsters, monsters that basically would change into something else. So they added this in and they do it for a lot of monsters in here. 
Unfortunately, there was one monster I wish they had done it for, the Lich. I really wish there was an elite version of the Lich. There are elite vampires, which is great. Vampires and Liches are like two of my favorite monsters. And so they did it for a lot of them, but basically it, it, it doubles the, the value of a monster. It doubles the thing. They count as two, two monsters, right? And, and then they, they usually have two phases of a battle, right? So really, you think legendary monsters are strong. These are like double legendary monsters, right? So that I thought was a really cool design. They have legendary monsters and we'll, we'll look at obviously a, a bunch of legendary monsters. And one of the neat things that they do with legendary monsters is legendary resistances. This is something you can, an idea that you can take and you can throw right into any of your 5e games. Legendary monsters have a physical reason for having legendary resistance. The example would be if you have a lich and the lich has three glowing ion stones around their head right? And every time they use a legendary resistance, one of the ion stones absorbs the energy of whatever was happening and it explodes. And now they only have two, right? So that way, instead of saying like you have this purely mechanical legendary resistance thing, which a lot of people don't like, right? There's a lot of people that are, I like it because I, I think monsters need it, but a lot of people feel it's like, it's just a wet balloon, you know, it's like counterspell for monsters, right? It's lame. And so, but the idea that you can, but the big problem was there was no actual in-game reason why they had these. So you might say like a Tarrasque has three smaller horns on its head, each one with like glowing with like a, a weird arcane glow. And as the Tarrasque is getting hit, we should, we should take a look at the Tarrasque and see, you know, but that idea of physical representation matters. There are also a couple of new status effects that are included in uh, level up 5e. I'm not gonna dig into them specifically, but they, they show up and you're like, what does that mean? One is like rattled. There's rattled as one of them. There's another, I'm trying to see if I can find it here. There's other status effects that you find in here. And the book, this book has the description of how those status effects work. So again, you don't need to have the other, even though it's, it has some like unique effects, you don't need to have the other books in order to get those effects to work for your for your game. So, you know, Abolith here is an example. And this, so the one complaint I have, and I understand why they had to do it, there was no good way for them to do this, is they have no problem spreading monsters across multiple pages. And in some cases they have monsters that are so big that they have multiple page stat blocks, right? And I get why. And I know that there was, particularly when you have spell casters, we'll look at the Lich, right? One of my favorites. When you look at the Lich, like you cannot add all of the abilities of a Lich into a stat block and describe them all. Cause like the 5e monster manual Lich, all of its power are in a tiny set of spells without any descriptions about what those spells do. So now they have ways to, this. they describe the most likely used spells, which is sort of the new 5e way. We talked about that with Monsters of the Multiverse last week. But when you do that with like a creature like a lich, how do you do that and not have a stat block that's huge? Well, they just said, we're gonna have a huge stat block. The other thing is when you have 535 page book already and you're gonna pack as many monsters into this as they did and as much material, they're just gonna have to spread it across the pages. So I understand why, but from a design perspective, that makes it hard to use at the table because you're switching pages for the same monster. It's already, if you're running multiple monsters that are across multiple pages, you're, it's, it's gonna be quite a hassle. So that's one thing I don't like. The design of monsters, they have lots of interesting things like signs. What are the, you know, what are the signs that these monsters exist? What are the behaviors that the monsters have? There's a tactic section. People have been dying 
people really, really want a tactic sec section. They have these encounter sections where like right built in is like, what would an encounter look like that has this monster at different challenge ratings? Legend lore, right? What can they learn if they do an arcana or history check? What do they learn about the creature? Very usable, right? Really straightforward, usable stuff. And then, and they still have the Watsy style, you know, here is the description of it with like, you know, head, subheadings that kind of say, well laid plans, what do they do? But then they have a lot of information that you can use. And I think there's a tactics, right? Combat, right? Ablo strikes as many enemies as possible with its tentacles. So pretty good. Then then here we have, you know, you know getting right into the Aboleth. Aboleth variant, ancient Aboleth, eldest Aboleth, right? Elite monsters. This is that idea that it counts as two CR 11s, has 342 hit points. Oh, they added the bloodied condition back from 4E. So if you like the bloodied condition from 4E, you can, it's, it's right here. And descriptions of that. They have this interesting thing of like elite recovery. The Aboleth ends one negative effect currently affecting it. And it can use this action as long as it has at least one hit point. There's probably some arguments about like what counts as something affecting it. Like, can it bust its way out of a force cage? Maybe? Like, is that actually affecting it? Yeah, we'd probably say yes. The DM would probably say yes. But there's there's weird things like you know, I go back and and, and Heroes Feast is different in level up 5e than it was in, in D D. But let's like a green dragon who's breathing poison on people who have Heroes Feast and they have a hundred percent immunity to, to poison. Is that a negative effect? Probably not, right? So there's some questions about like to me that that ends one negative effect. That's that's there's some fuzziness in there that I wouldn't mind having a little bit of depth. And maybe in the book there's probably descriptions of this. But I like this. So you you have 342 monsters, right? 342 hit points instead of the, the base stats of, of, of an uh, Aboleth, which is somewhere here. 171, basically twice, right? Twice as high. And that's because when it gets halfway and turns bloodied, that's when all of a sudden it gains these other things. It gains elite recovery. Look upon my works. Each creature within 90 feet makes a saving throw of failure. The fragmenting vision of Aboleth's memories takes 33 psychic damage. Lunging attacks, moves up to its swim speed without provoking opportunity attacks and makes a tentacle attack. So it gets more difficult. This is that pure mythic idea, right? And they call that elite. It's a little confusing if like, I mean, it doesn't take that much effort to figure it out, but like elite in 4E, because there's 4E stuff, that they brought into level up 5e here, things that were good at like bloodied, right? If you're a 4e DM, you might kind of get your head around those ideas and you might hear something like elite and say, oh, so that makes it like an elite monster was in 4e. Well, no, because an elite monster in 4e was essentially a double strength monster, regular monster, where a solo in 4e was more like a legendary monster. This one is saying we're taking legendaries and making those double. So it's not... You know, it, 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 there's a little bit of a collision with the word elite when you think about 4E. But again, once you read in here, ah, an elite is like a mythic monster. An elite is a double strength legendary monster. It becomes pretty, pretty clear. One big question I had about a book like this is I believe firmly that Wizards of the Coast's monster design above challenge rating 10 doesn't meet my expectations. Right. Some people may be perfectly happy with it and, and go with the gods. Right. I'm, I am happy that you're happy for me. I have found having run many, many monsters at higher challenge ratings that they don't hold up nearly as well as a threat as low monsters do for low characters, low challenge rating monsters do for low characters, right? That the level of threat that a monster brings to the table doesn't hold up as you get to higher levels in fifth edition. So when I look at a book like this, I'm hoping for it to solve some of that. And they do, they, they, for the most part, they do. 
I, I could quip that I think the monster damage is probably still too low. But I know that Paul knows what he was doing when he when he balanced monsters out. And they do, they certainly have a lot of effects that are stronger for the challenge rating at higher levels. But then you look at a book that's meant to be an entire replacement for the monster manual and say, that's great, but how many, what about low monsters? Do I care? And And the argument is like, probably not. Right, there's lots of interesting stuff in here. Animated objects being a good example, right? You have animated armor. Did I need a replacement for animated armor? Not really, right? They changed it, like there's little things from the ones that I looked at. You know, the flying sword, challenge rating one four, right? It goes up and it hits, plus three to hit, does five damage, right? They they changed some stuff a little bit, but it, like I didn't really need a new animated sword, right? I'm fine with my animated swords in in fifth edition with with the vanilla monster manual. So then it's like, well, it's 535 pages. How many of those pages are things that actually really help me? And how much of those pages are like, you know, kind of don't matter. And that's a good question to ask. You still get all of the other things though. You still get all the variants. You still get all of the behavior, the object, the legends and lore, lots of different things you could use. And that's why I say like, I'll tell you this. I don't think that the low CR monsters in this are worse than what's in the monster manual, which gets to my question of, is this a better monster manual? Maybe. Right. And the reason why it might be maybe is because I bet you it's not any worse, right, than the monster manual is for, for lower monsters and for a higher challenge monsters, like having the elite traits, like having these other factors in there. Like, you know, there's lots of things in here that I think make it better. So I think it could be, right? Which is interesting. You know, am I going to use it instead of the monster manual? Probably, probably not. Right. I don't know. I just, I hang on to my, my, you know, I don't know, I should, right? Maybe I should, maybe next time I'll, I'll run more of this stuff and, tr and see what it's like. You know, really cool stuff, the Ankegs, you know, all this, all the, you know, different ways. And you know that like, again, they know what they were doing. You have one designer who's kind of looking at this whole thing. Slyfush, are you happy with the Lich? Let's look at the Lich. Let's find the Lich here. It's a big book. Let's look at a dragon first, right? So... I like the dragons and the dragon stat blocks. They're, they're big, right? Like here's an ancient black dragon, 367 hit points. I don't know how this compares. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do like a side by side look, right? 367 hit points. How's the breath weapon? Acid breath, 22 acid. Let's see. Acid spit. I like that. They have these like spit attacks, like ranged attacks that aren't the breath weapon. 85 acid damage on an acid breath. That's great. But then check this out. Now they've got the black, the black great worms, right? And the Black Great Worm is an elite monster, equivalent of two CR, 735 hit points. Concentrated acid when first bloody immediately recharges his breath weapon. For the next minute, the dragon's acid becomes immensely more corrosive, including as ignoring acid resistance and treating acid immunity as resistance. I love that, right? Now we've got a green dragon that can breathe and really hurt people. Elite recovery, we talked about that before. It has makes gaze attacks, saving throw against roar, even if it's already succeeded. Caustic surge, dragon recharges breath weapon. Consecrated decay, dragon spits a highly concentrated blast of acid. One creature can see within 90 feet. That creature is effective as though, as though caught in a breath weapon, right? Really, really cool. And then you have the spellcaster dragons, right? Black spellcasters, what kind of stuff they have. You're kind of getting, so first of all, the ancient black dragon great worm, the, the, the black great worm in this, way more powerful than the great worms that are in, I think, I think that's right, probably, that are in Fizzbands. So you're getting a lot of Fizzband level dragon stuff in a book that's also your re full replacement for the monster manual. Really cool, right? So I, I love I love that kind of stuff. These, these, these feel right. The damage feels right. Here's the uh, ancient blue 
right? Arc lightning, uh, 94 damage lightning breath, right? That's a lot of damage. So that works. But yeah, let's let's look at let's let's get to my get to my lich, and then I want to look at vampires, and then we'll call it we'll call it a, we'll call it well reviewed. If you haven't gotten my thing, I think it's definitely worth it. Twenty bucks for the PDF, easy. I don't know how to get the physical version. I might I might pick up a physical version, especially if I feel like I'm gonna if I'm gonna run if I'm gonna run this myself. I should is there a table of contents? Yeah. Oh look look at me. I'm learning things. A lot of stuff to look at here. Here we go. The lich. I found my lich. So the I really wish, and I'm surprised that the lich doesn't have an elite version, right? Because of all of the monsters who really could use an elite version, the lich would be it. Lots of, but, but the lich's section is already pages long, right? One page, two pages, three pages, four pages, four pages for the lich already. So adding an elite would make it like five, six. Is it worth six pages just for this one monster? I don't know. They, the, the, this, this is the example of like, oh my God, so much stuff, right? The, it's a CR 21 and it's got two pages of stuff going on, right? That's a lot of stuff. And the reason why is they wanted to put a lot of its spells directly in the stat block. Arc lightning. Tar Lich charging is three creatures within 60 feet. Each target takes DC 18. Dex saving throughout failure takes 28 lightning damage. What I like about this one is it doesn't require a line of effect. Or it doesn't require having like a line like a lightning bolt does. It's just three creatures within 60 feet. It works really well for theater of the mind. And I actually talked to Morris at NWorld about that. And he said, yeah, that was intentional. We wanted to make some of the abilities work easier in theater of the mind than, than they do normally. So like you could say arc lightning could have been a lightning bolt, right? But it's not. So, you know, firebolt, thunder wave, they, they, they basically took the spell blocks. What, what's interesting about this is it, it mirrors. So Wizards of the Coast for about six months thought, we're going to put spell descriptions in our stat blocks to 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 help counter the argument that we should that it's hard to run a spellcaster. So they did that for a few books and no, no monster books. They did that for a couple of adventures. Mostly, I remember Descent into Avernus had this, and I wonder if like third party designers looked at that and said, "Oh, okay, that's the new style," and started going that way. And now Wizards is like, "No, now we're going to create new effects like arc lightning," and and then third party publishers are like, "Yeah, but I'm still describing spells in here." Right, so now we have this sort of mismatch in, in what the design is like, but I think it works either way. And so the idea that fireball, third level spell, you know, is described right in the stat block to make it easy, so you don't have to go look up what fireball does or confusion. Confusion is a better one because, like fireball, if you run a bunch of them, you kind of know what fireball does. Confusion, you don't. Disintegrate, right? So all of the big ones: power word, stun, finger of death, disintegrate, confusion. I'm surprised that circle of death isn't in here, but I guess circle of death isn't on the spell list anyway. So neat stuff, 170 hit points, so more hit points than a normal Lich has, probably not as much as it could have for a CR 21. But I suppose with like the rejuvenation and with other, probably if it's got some other abilities in here. Does it, does it have lair actions? Lair features, yeah. So Lich, you know, they have lair features. I don't know that they have lair actions, which is kind of interesting. I just noticed that. So I like, do I like the new Lich? I do. Would I run it direct? I don't know. I think I end up customizing every Lich that I ever run anyway. And I'm sad that there isn't an elite Lich. I would love to see an elite, an elite Lich. But let's look at the vampire. So there's actually a bunch of different vampire things. Look at the pages on vampires, right? So same thing. You got your legends and lore so you can learn about your vampires. And I like how table usable that thing is, right? You can do a check and you're, and you're done. Vampire encounters, what those would look like. CR 31, elder vampire with two or three regular vampires, right? Interesting. 
And so lots of different things, layer behavior, all this sort of like group behavior, you know, what they kind of do. And then you have a straightforward vampire who is also legendary. Again, this is like, oh, it's not the way I'd have done it, right? Of course, like, you know, well, where's your monster book, Mike? So I won't complain too much, but I will say like, it would have been, I think a, if I were doing vampires from scratch and I have, I have Sly Flourish's vampires. So if you want a book about vampires, I have a PDF that you can get for free. Go to Sly Flourish, check out Sly Flourish's vampires. Built in conjunction with Chris Sims, a 5e developer. He and I worked together on that. And I like, I would like vampires that aren't legendary. I want powerful, I want something above a vampire spawn that's a regular vampire, that is not legendary. And then to me, elder vampires and and these big fancy ones, those are the legendary ones. Instead, Wizards of the Coast and others have made the, the, the default vampire is a legendary monster. I can get there, but I, the thing is sometimes I think you might face three or four vampires. There's lots of fiction where you face multiple vampires. And you can't face multiple vampires that are legendary, right? Lots lots of good stuff here. I, I'm, I'm not a fan of the charm, right? And I think that the charm is an area where I think it could have been fixed and, and it wasn't here. DC 16 wisdom saving throw. target has at least one level of strife. Strife is like stress effects, right? Makes the saving throw with disadvantage. And a failed target is charmed by the vampire for 24 hours. While charmed, it regards the vampire as a trusted friend and willing target for the vampire's bite. Target repeats the saving throw each time it takes damage. Okay, so at least now you can damage your friend and knock them out of it. So that's a big difference. And I, I missed that. The old one, it could only be damaged by the vampire, right? So now you can just slap your friend until they are not charmed anymore, right? With the other vampire, you couldn't. With the vampire in the monster manual, only the vampire can break the charm, which is a real bad way to like pull a character out of the game. And then the player's like, well, what do I do, right? So um, lots of different things here. But again, another, you know, really big stat block. And this is one where like, you have all these stats like in this little corner up here and then all the other stats on the other page, a little hard to deal with. Then you have, and now in a physical book spread though, this will at least be across the spread of the page. So it's not, it's not quite so bad. And then you have Elder Vampires, which are really cool, right? It's multiple equivalent to two CR11 monsters, you know, 285 hit points, big, nasty vampires here, right? And I like those. And then you have Vampire Assassins and Vampire Mages. Again, they they kind of said here are the big spells that a Vampire Mage is going to have. Fireball, Blight, and sh and Shield. Vampire Warriors. And then you have kind of Vampire Spawns. So a lot of good stuff about vampires. Are these as good as I would want? They're pretty great. Uh, like, let's look at the damage output. Bite. Uh, one target that is grappled, incapacitated, restrained, or willing target. 10 piercing damage plus 21 necrotic. That's a lot of necrotic damage. That's really good. A CR 11, that's really good. It's interesting this 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 vampire is a less... It looks like... Oh, and then reaction, right? It takes radiant damage, can move without provoking, warding charm. When a legend, when a creature the vampire can see, attacks with a melee attack, but before the attack is made, the vampire uses charm on it, right? So it can charm somebody and then bite them doesn't have a slam attack. So it looks like all of its damage is in that bite. Oh no, I'm sorry. What am I looking at? Grab. 14 bludgeoning damage plus four necrotic. Okay, eight, you know, 18 damage on a grab attack. Again, only does one, but then it, it can do a bite as a bonus action. A lot, you see, one of the things you'll see with the design of the level up 5e monsters is a lot more emphasis on bonus actions and on reactions. The other thing I noticed is that the legendary actions are almost always unique, right? It's rare to see, I guess in this one, they have like charm and, and the grab attack. So it uses grab a lot, right? Good stuff. All right. I have talked uh, this book to death. I highly recommend it. It's really cool. I think for some people, it definitely could be a, a just straight up replacement to the monster manual and could probably work fine. In fact, might work better. I might pick up the physical version and try that out because I'm, I'm really I'm really curious about it. I know they went through a fair bit of playtesting on it. I haven't seen anything that I read and go, oh my God, that's way off. And which is not what I could say for other people. 
Mike Shea's being passive aggressive. So pick it up. It's really cool. All right. That was a big spotlight. Let's do some Q&A, right? We only got 10 minutes left. Let's do some Patreon. Let's let's talk some questions. So I mentioned earlier in the show that on this Tuesday night, and if you are watching this on YouTube, there will be another video where it is all patron questions. I'm going to cover all of the remainder of the patron questions I have left, which is a lot of questions that I've got left over. So I'm going to do one big video where we hit all of the patron questions for January and get those and and and, and call those done. Cloaker asks, if you were to look at the core rule mechanics of 5e and how they are implemented in your current 5e games at the table, what would you rank as the three biggest time sinks, either for your players or yourself, that you'd like to see streamlined or even eliminated from the game, either by revision or of rule set or collaborative consensus with your players? To offer some examples, 5e encumbrance rules, uh, going to slot-based system, tedious and incremental wealth tracking, stuff like that, you know, exhaustion rules, interested to hear what you would cut. So the, a big one that, so I thought about this and I think a big one that I would cut are the summon spells. The, the, the original summon spells inside the monster manual where it's like suddenly one player now has nine turns that they take on their, on their turn, right? Like, oh, I summoned eight wolves. So it's me and my eight wolf friends and wolf one is going to go here and do this. And wolf two is going to go, oh my God. Like when, whoever thought that was a good idea, right? And it's just bogs us down. We used to, we call it wolf ball. Cause I was like, why don't we just replace it with a fireball, right? Only it's wolves right? And we call it wolf ball. It's like, what a hassle, right? Who wants to manage that stuff? And like, I've heard all kinds of people with all kinds of house rules on how they manage that. But if you think about it, like, as written in it, it's a tremendous time sink. So Tosh has fixed a lot of this by creating, basically saying you can summon monsters, but you basically summon one and it has a stat block that can grow and get bigger. So I like that better, right? And that, that, that's something where I would certainly want to talk to my players and say, Hey guys, I know if you, I know you dig those summon spells. I'm going to let you finish while you talk about your summon spells, but I want to let you know that the Tasha spells are, are definitely superior, right? And I would switch the summon spells over to the Tasha's version. It's, it's interesting because it's one of the things where I think Tasha's is really strong is that some of their replacement spells are, are definitely better than the spells that were in the, in the main book. So, but yeah, talk about a time sink. Anytime a player has more turns than their own. That's a time sink. And even having one is bad, like with familiars, but generally those go pretty quickly. But when you summon like eight sprites, oh my God, right? No. Companion characters in general, I think are a big time sink. Anytime you have more characters than players, that can be a hassle. And so I really, I, I try not to have NPCs that travel with the characters. I think it's a big, unless they're like invisible and off screen. I'll tell you the kind of NPC I love to have travel with characters. Intelligent weapons are great, right? They are great ways to communicate and role play with the characters without having any actions or taking up screen real estate during your during your games itself. Controllery AOE spells like undead and hypnotic, like a turn undead and hypnotic pattern. I, I just kind of house rule a lot of times that if you hit them with that and they fail, a lot of times I just remove them from play. Though if you if you like walk through the whole process of like keeping them there and then do they break out and stuff like that. Like sometimes it works out if somebody goes and slaps somebody to get them out of hypnotic pattern. You know, that can that can kind of work. But a lot of times it's just best to remove them from play. But those things are kind of a big time. That's sort of controlling lots of monsters. A, it's it's it can be kind of a drag on the game. And B, B, they can take a lot of time. The other one, which, you know, I had, I had read, I, you know, some designers of 5e talked about this, that, I, boy, it'd be nice if there weren't bonus actions. I don't like bonus actions. I would, and, and it's, it's, this is like almost a completely irrelevant conversation anyway, because it's not like they're going anywhere. And I don't even think in six, in whatever, 5.5, whatever we're calling the 2024 version of d and I bet you they're still there. 
And I get why they're there. The problem is that I've seen players where you do it, like after they do an action, after they move, you're like, ah, but do you want to do a bonus action too? It's this whole other thing. And it would have been cooler if they could sort of take all of the stuff that you normally did in bonus actions and sort of pack it into actions. So a typical bonus action of like uh, healing word. Imagine if healing word also let you cast a cantrip, right? On top of it. Or it, it that basically like bonus actions instead of having a bonus action, you, you, your actions have the bonus action thing tied into it, right? However, I, I get that things like offhand attacks, it's really convenient to basically say there are certain things that are bonus actions for everybody. I get it, right? But bonus actions would be something I get rid of only because that way you have a move and an action on your turn and it's really easy. And then once they've committed that action, they're done, right? You don't have to say anything else because it's just take, there's like this whole, you know, I do this thing. Great. Do you have anything else? No. And, and a lot of times, and I, I have a character that I play in my friend's game and I have like nine bonus actions and I always have to list to be like, which one of my, for me, the bonus actions are because I'm always going to attack. I'm a fighter, right? I'm a rune knight fighter. I'm always going to make a melee attack as my main action, but then I've got like 38 bonus actions to choose from. And so my turn on my decision-making is which bonus action I'm going to do. Uh, yeah, and Pathfinder 2 has the three action system. I don't like that either. I like what Numenera does. And we're going to talk about that. Numenera, you do a thing right? You do one thing and that's it. All right. Keep it, keep it simple. We all have different things. Some people really like the tactically choosing of the different things. I just want like, do a thing, do a cool thing and then move on. Right. Paul M. What techniques like failing forward and turning the dials of monster difficulty with, with techniques like failing forward and turning the dials of monster difficulty, it's possible to virtually assure PCs never die. Under what circumstances have PCs died in your game? And how often has character death happened? Character death happens two or three times a campaign on the roughly, right? And bad things can still happen. Turning the dials doesn't mean saying, oh, I'm going to turn back the damage because I don't want a character to die. Characters still die, right? The circumstance is still the circumstance. The, we, we turn the dials in order to make sure that the, the, the level and the energy of what we wanted to have happen happens. The, the particular dial that would stop a character from dying are usually the damage that a monster does. And I'm almost always turning that dial up, not down, right? And usually I need that dial because monsters aren't doing enough damage, right? Hit points, I will lower hit points because they've already reached a point where the characters are going to win and we don't want to spend a lot of time. I do that instead of the what I consider to be a cardinal sin, which is let's just call the battle right here. That drives me bananas as a player, right? So what I do is I turn the hit points down so that you drop faster. But I, I don't think I've ever done any... I'm sure that's not true. I'm sure that I've tweaked things to prevent character deaths. But I've had a lot of characters die. Not a lot, but it, it happens. It's not. I'm not like the brutal DM who kills characters all the time. Right. I, I like characters live. I like I like characters have a lot of background story and generally don't want to kill them a lot. But I've certainly not I don't feel like I've ever pulled punches by using the dials to pull the punch on like preventing a character death. That's not what the dials are for. Right. The dials are there to make sure that the pacing and the energy of the game are are where you want it to be and where where it feels right. They're not there to for you to steer the story. And maybe the differences between those things are hard to figure out. And that's some advanced D&D work right there, right? Is understanding that. But yeah. David P says, do you have a sense of why third-party content creators don't release their content digitally along the lines of D&D Beyond? Is it the lack of a good platform like D&D Beyond that's open to them? 
I'm assuming D&D Beyond must not be open to third party. You are correct. And PDFs are just, are just aren't the same experience. Yeah, you're, so you're, you're right. A, they do, right? Third party content creators release their content digitally along the lines of D&D Beyond in places like Fantasy Grounds and in Roll20. So two of the most popular third, two of the most popular virtual tabletop platforms do have lots of third party content in it and lots of people release their stuff in that those those tools they can't do it in D&D Beyond because D&D Beyond is exclusive to D&D so I think only they have like one or two tiny little things mostly critical role stuff that they include in D&D Beyond but they can't include Cobalt Press stuff for example right that has to do with the licensing for D&D Beyond and it gets to me to be a problem with D&D Beyond that it can't have that third-party stuff why isn't why aren't they making their own why doesn't Cobalt Press have it because building a portal like that now you got to maintain a big website and that's a hassle right so building some I I'm I'm of the belief and I know, I think my friend Evil John here will disagree with me. I'm in the belief that building something like D&D Beyond is a pretty extensive experience. It's pretty, that's a lot of work, right? With real developers that, and like a full-time staff that's going to manage troubleshooting and stuff like that. It's hard to host something like that. You know, could you put your monsters up online? Probably, right? And, you know, I think like some do, right? I think like, I think Cobalt Press has an SRD or no, their own OGL and replace, you know, puts them up that way. But it's hard to do. So that means you need another existing platform. And the only ones that really are ubiquitous are like Roll20, Fantasy Grounds, and D&D Beyond. So, so yeah, yeah. Nicole Vanderhoven says, hey, why not just give us the Markdown files? Because you and I would be real happy with that, right? I'm guessing most people don't want Markdown files. I, I do, one thing I do is like, I release, I release all my stuff, not everything, but many of my books in EPUB because I want them to be flexible for different platforms. That's a little better, right? Like at least I'm handing you all the digital versions so that you can uh, view that on your phone easily and stuff like that. I can't do it for everything, right? And, and it's hard to do with stuff like stat blocks. So I think the real reason why is because like hosting your own thing is really hard work. And also part of it is the industry has uh, cemented itself around PDFs. And frankly, it's good enough. My opinion is it's good enough. I don't, I don't complain about getting PDFs. So yeah, uh, right. And DM Chromie brings up the whole thing about uh, Runic Games had a League of Legends thing that was up in, on D&D Beyond for like 30 seconds and they got taken down, apparently smacked down by Wizards of the Coast. The relationship between D&D Beyond and Wizards of the Coast, I don't know that we know a lot about it, but it certainly is preventing third-party stuff. Logic error. When I DM, I think a lot about how NPCs and monsters approach a fight. And one of the things I have a hard time with is morale. The DMG rules don't really make sense to me and I haven't yet hit upon a good solution of my own mechanically. So I usually wing it. I'm wondering if you have any tips. I, I'm fine with what the DMG provides. The DMG, let's take a look. Speaking of D&D Beyond, I'll go to D&D Beyond, look up morale. So uh, the DMG has a system for morale, which is very straightforward, which is under certain circumstances, uh, creatures might flee. And if you want to determine if they're going to flee, make them make DC 10 wisdom saving throws for the creature or the creature's leader. If they fail the save, that means they run away. I, you know, I, you, I am, I am good with mechanically light systems. I don't need a mechanically heavy system, right? I'm, I'm good with like, give me the minimum I need. This is fine. Uh, the, the other thing is I would say before I do any of this, I would just get my head in the creature and say, it doesn't make sense for them to flee. Right. And that's the easiest way is, you know, given, given the intelligence of the creature and what they're, what's going on with them. And maybe you look at the stats, like, like Keith Alman recommends, you look at the stats and say, does this creature, is a creature smart enough to recognize like this is a losing fight. Right. But if you want to roll, like if they're panicked, like, will they take an opportunity attack to flee the DC 10 wisdom save, I think is a good way to go. Right. So I would, I would start with what makes sense for the, uh, this is like the, the sly flourish, Mike Shea default view. 
what makes sense for the story, right? Is like the easiest part of this. What Do what makes sense for the story first, right? Think about the story. Think about what makes sense. Look into this creature, look into the circumstance, getting in the head of the creature. Doesn't make sense that they'd run away. Yeah, then they run away. But are they surrounded by three fighters and a paladin? Right? You, you know, kobold is surrounded by three fighters and a paladin. Is the kobold going to run away? Maybe it makes a wisdom saving throw. On a, on a fail, it runs and takes a smite and three you know, attacks. On the other hand, maybe it says, I surrender, right? <clears throat> so I think start with what makes sense for the story. And then I think that I'm, I'm fine with the DMG rules. I don't, and I'm sure there's other people that have other rule sets out there for how to handle morale, but I'm, but I'm really happy with it. Ken B, do you have any recommendations for good fourth edition adventures to run in the Nentir Vale setting using 5e rules? I'm, I'm doing Harken, Harkenwold for a group, and I would like some other ideas to continue the game after that. Uh, I recommend taking a look at Madness at Gardmore Abbey. I I, is it on the DMs Guild? I should have checked before I... It is. So Madness at Gardmore Abbey, and who who wrote that? Greg Billsland. Oh, Crichton. I didn't know. Really, Crichton Broadthirst wrote that. Mike Marles and Chris Perkins wrote it. Interesting. So Crichton, who does... Uh, Raging Swan, right? I think, isn't Crichton Broadhurst the guy who does Raging Swan? Or I, is that a different Crichton? That might be a different Crichton. Might be a different one. But Madness of Gardmore Abbey, you can pick it up for 12 books. This was a box set that came out for fourth edition of D&D later on in fourth edition's, uh, fourth edition style. And it was, they, they were doing lots of experimenting with different kinds of things. It is a very good adventure a fun adventure where you have lots of multiple dungeons that are separated by these physical areas it, it manages to capture a lot of like the classic greyhawk style dungeon delving but also has fun stuff and includes the deck of many things and in the physical ver i actually have a physical copy of it on my shelf over there and the physical version came with a copy of the deck of many things so it is a really cool it is a really cool adventure. I, I, I highly, I think you'll get a lot out of it. I haven't looked at it in a long time, but I remember liking it a lot. And I, I ran it, right? I ran it for my group and our, our, my group ran it a lot. A, a lot. So, so I definitely, that you, you ask for a recommendation, I would definitely recommend checking out Madness at Gardmore Abbey. We have, oh, look, there's a Numenera. Let's do the Numenera question because we're going right into Numenera. This will be going. Uh, the Numenera in a setting and the cipher system as a whole make a part of the experience points awarded to the players dependent on them making discoveries about the world. When they discover something that is useful to them, which is important, then they get one to four XP depending on the size of the discovery and usefulness. I have therefore replaced the secrets and clues step with a discoveries and clues step in my prep for cipher. This is handy because I'm about to do that right after this. The differences are that one, I do not just create 10 secrets which the players might not care about, because I have come up with at least one important use for the discovery. Two, I have an actual reason to come up with at least some clues, as in the name of the steps, which you intentionally do not, which you intentionally do not do because clues should be improvised. I ask myself, how do I expect the players to at least learn where there is something to discover so that they can do the rest? Do you have any thoughts on this in the discovery theme of Numenera, given that you said you'd be playing the system in the soon? Uh, soon is going to be in five minutes. So I think there's one thing you said, which makes me raise an eyebrow, right? And that is when you say, I do not create 10 secrets, which the players might not care about. The definition by my writing in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master is these are things the players would care about. These are, these are, these are, this is information the players would care about, which means the characters would probably care about it too, right? So secrets and clues when you're coming up with the 10 should be things that are relevant to the characters, right? They should always be relevant to the characters. 
I think what you're asking and, and, and calling them discoveries and clues, I think is fine. Like secrets and clues, it's just a term, right? It doesn't matter. So calling them discoveries is perfectly fine, right? That's a perfect way to go. And I think that fits the idea of Numenera discovery, right? So I think that that's a fine way to go. I think that's a fine way to go. Oh, Rang, Rang, Rangavarg says that Crichton was, is a guy from Raging Swan. That is really cool. So the dude from Raging Swan, who I, whose products I adore, was one of the writers for Garmore Abbey. I did not realize that. That is really cool. So yeah, I, I, I think your approach is fine, right? And I think if you want to look at an important clue and say, how can they discover that? And are there multiple, I would say, are there multiple ways that they could discover it? I think that, that's a fine way to go. But I think secrets and clues, because a lot of that came from ideas from like Numenera, right? A lot of the stuff that I, that I do regularly in my D&D games came from my use of Numenera because I love Numenera so much. So yeah, I think that that's a fine way to go. And we'll uh, experiment with it right now. Thank you for that question, Ingo. Ingo L. My friends, I want to thank you very much for hanging out with me today uh, to talk about all things D&D. Uh, again, remember, D&D is important. Getting together with your friends to play games are, is important. And I, I love doing it. And I, I also love hanging out with you to talk about it every week. So thank you all very much for coming. If you enjoyed this video, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter, supporting me directly on Patreon, subscribing to my videos on YouTube, or picking up any of my books. Thank you all very much. Have a great day. Get out there and play some D&D.